Well, greetings and welcome to the 20th of February, 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut. And as always, it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show, Ashley Aberg, project archivist of the Greenwich Historical Society, joins us today for Lively Conversation. You'll hear a story of two 19th century Greenwich abolitionists in conflict with each other about the eradication of slavery. Rosemary Hall held its first reception in mid-February 1901. A man fell to his death in 1925 after climbing the water tower at one of Greenwich's Gilded Age Great Estates. On crimes and misdemeanors, a New York City police commissioner got into some trouble. My friends will have all this and lots more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at healthsitepro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. 
Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. The James Stevenson and Josie Merck Stevenson Library and Archives at the Greenwich Historical Society is like none other. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the Library and Archives contains an unmatched collection of documents and ephemera relating to the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. It is one of my favorite places to visit, by the way. Among its staff is Ashley Aberg, project archivist. We gathered at the Bush Holly House campus recently, where I learned about her valuable work. Here is my conversation with Ashley Aberg. Ashley, well, welcome. Now, let's start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Uh, so, as you said, I'm Ashley, Ashley Aberg. Uh, I grew up in New York City, pretty nearby, but I wound up in Greenwich kind of a little bit coincidentally. I graduated from my master's program in library information science, and I have a focus in archives management, which is sort of what brought me here. Mm -hmm. uh, the project archivist job here sounded really interesting, and it also sounded like a really good introductory job okay. for me. Yeah. Uh, and I've loved every minute that I've spent here. Greenwich has been really welcoming uh, the work here has been really interesting. The materials that I find, I tend to be able to find these connection points with. I really, I love it. You're, well, you're way ahead of a lot of us then. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> there's all sorts of twists and turns in our local history here. Um, lots of good stuff too, but it's never interesting or never, you know, whatever. So anyway. All right, let's see. Um, all right, so, um, okay, well, welcome to Greenwich, by the way, in case nobody's welcomed you yet. Thank you, you know, very much. You're very welcome, and we'll welcome you again and again if we have to. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. All right. Um, all right, tell us about your role as the project archivist, and, you know, exactly what do you do? So we call me the project archivist because I was originally brought on under an IMLS grant. IMLS here means the Institute of Museum and Library Studies. Okay. So uh, the institution applied for a grant long before I ever arrived here mm -hmm. to digitize some materials and to process others. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do what's called processing backlogged materials. Oh, okay. So every archive no matter how prestigious it is, no matter how well-funded it is, no matter how incredible the institution has materials that have been languishing, like in the back somewhere, yes. that are just either what's called partially processed or even just entirely unprocessed. Mm -hmm. What that means is that they're in boxes. Yeah. Sometimes those boxes are archive standard. Sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. um, and they just kind of sit back there until someone can get their hands on them and then arrange them. So the Greenwich Historical Society is not immune, although we've been pushing through and doing a ton of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is processing is a question oh, yeah. that I get asked a lot. Yeah. Um, processing has a ton of different parts. Okay. So I start by physically organizing materials, determining whether any of them maybe need some care okay. or if they need special handling. Uh, even if they might need more intense conservation that we might need to like send out. Mm. 
And then after that, I arrange those materials and I try really hard to keep as much original arrangement as possible, which means that uh, however the person or company or organization or institution gave those materials to us mm. is generally how you want to present it. Okay. Because those people usually had some intentions in why they organized it that way. Uh, but you sometimes also just get crates of letters that were thrown in there with no real thought given to it at all. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> so I try and keep those, put those materials together in a way that makes sense. And so that someone coming in and looking at it can pull these out and tell themselves the story of this person or this organization. Yeah. And then once that's done, I do some research into the collection itself or into the person who, or who donated it or into the organization that donated it so that I can write my materials. Oh, because okay. the end product of what I do is producing what's called a finding aid. Oh. Uh, finding aids are really incredible documents. They give you a full overview of the collection's scope and contents. So like what's in this collection. Mm -hmm. uh, they will also then give you a list of boxes and folders. Okay. So that if you know that you're interested in like Anya Seton, you might only be interested in a particular work of hers or a particular time period of her work. And so you can email us or call us and we'll be able to pull out only materials specifically related to what you want to research okay. instead of giving you all like 30 boxes. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a death wish. <laughs> it, can, it can be a lot, but I, I yeah. do. I, I love going through it all. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you, then you have curved um, a niche for yourself then, because um, I, I would say probably, I know that my family has, uh, the Meads have um, an enormous number of things here. We're probably guilty of just, you know, bringing boxes by without any kind of organization or anything like that. So shame on us. But, oh, well. But yeah. you find some fun stuff that way. Oh, absolutely. So when you, when you go through these unorganized <laughs> boxes, I will say I pulled out of the Meads, uh, a, a whole court case from the 1700s. Oh, cool. Which included all of the handwritten, like, witness statements and depositions and, like, you must be present at the New Haven courthouse and, you know, on X such a date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well... As long as it's not in the present day, I think it's fine. You no, know? <laughs> it was it was two hundred years ago. Two hundred years safe. ago. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully they showed up and everything. All right. Well, that's that's good. Well, that is a lot that that you are doing, and uh, and we bless you and thank you for that. Now, what are you working on presently? So I'm just finishing up the Bill Finch collection, oh, which yes. is what I was working on last time you were in here. Because yes. you know, mm -hmm. between the end of 2023, and we actually got a really exciting donation very recently. Oh, really? Um, yes. So uh, the grandchild, one of the grandchildren of Anson and Sadie Beth Lowitz had oh, yeah. a bunch of correspondence from the Hollies and the McCrays. Oh, wow. And so we actually got um, new correspondence in for our Holly McCray collection, mm -hmm. which I then did a pretty detailed what's called accession inventory. Oh, so yes. when you get materials in, you do what's called accessioning them, which okay. is you add them into the collection. Okay. And for materials like this, we wanted to be much more detailed and go to what we in the industry would call the item level, oh, which means we, yes. we looked at every letter <laughs> <laughs> and we sort of tried to figure out like, what, are, what do we have here? It's really, it's great stuff. I'm very excited for us to be able to get that, oh, uh, get that in there. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you, because you just explained it to me like I'm a five-year-old, and I don't take offense to that. I'm actually very grateful, uh, because 
you know, I, I, I've been one of those people and other people in my family and others, um, you know, too. You know, we bring the boxes in and we just we do try to organize it ourselves, but we lack your um, intelligence and expertise. So it's not the intelligence, it's the expertise. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, OK. All right. We have a consensus. We agree on that for sure. So that's very nice of you. You're, you're very kind. Uh, so thank you. All right. Now, um, uh, what's what's in store for the future about what it is that you're doing here? And, and, and so I'm I we've had some really generous uh, fundraising that's mm-hmm. been done f- uh, on my behalf. I'm very thankful for okay. since the end of the IMLS grant. We've been uh, we've done a couple of rounds to keep me on in six month bursts. Oh, good. Um, we're almost done with another six months. I'm very excited. Uh, I am uploading some of our old finding aids onto archive space. Oh, wow. Uh, so old ones that we have paper copies of here, but we think need to be digitally available. Sure. So I'm getting those up and together. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be processing more collections. That's you know what I'm here to do and what I really love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I just I love being here. I love learning more about Greenwich and I love learning more about Greenwich history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel really privileged to have my job. Good. Well, I'll tell you, folks, um, those of you that are listening, spread the word. If you have boxes and you know boxes and, and things of old letters and, and things like that, bring them here because we've got somebody. <laughs> we snagged you, and now we have to keep you here forever. I wish. Uh, I hope so. Ashley Aberg, you have to, um, uh, you have to ask for her. Um, and, and all. So um, as, we start to, uh, well, as we start to close, um, what, are, what are final thoughts would you like to share with me and with the listeners of the show? Uh, come visit us. We would love to have you. The archives are uh, open on Wednesdays. Well, we're open every other day, but Wednesdays, uh, you do not need an appointment. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we are open by appointment. We love research questions. We love having people come in to conduct research. Um, we'd really love to have you. We'd love to see you here. Yeah. Well, folks, you have you have heard it from the source. I have here been here with Ashley Aberg. She is the project archivist here at the archives of the Greenwich Historical Society. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Ashley, thank you very, very much. Really, I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. This was really lovely. The best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. 
Speaking of coffee for good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Mark your calendar for the evening of Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. That's when Business Leaders for Sustainability will be holding its launch event. The event featuring theatrical performances by JIB Productions will be held at the Greenwich Library's Mark's Family Black Box Theater in Greenwich, Connecticut from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. JIB Productions will be presenting two one-act plays on the environment and climate change as well as a reading of Earth Rise by Amanda Gorman. Tickets are $30 for non-members and free for members of Business Leaders for Sustainability, with a portion of proceeds benefiting Greenwich Community Gardens. Seating is limited. Reservations can be made by email at info at businessleadersforsustainability.org. Non-members will be invoiced via PayPal. The event will include a tasting of organic foods from garlic and herbs and organic and sustainably grown wines from WineWise, as well as a talkback from the performers and guests. Again, that is the launch event for Business Leaders for Sustainability to be held on February 28th, 2024, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. here in Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, Greenwich is no stranger to um, uh, tragic accidents, and I have one to, um, uh, to report to you. That was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on March 6, 1925. It happened on the uh, Commodore E.C. Benedict's um, estate that would be Indian Harbor. Um, if you walk down to the very, very end of Steamboat Road, walk past the um, the Indian Harbor uh, Yacht Club, and you look over to the left, you will see Commodore E.C. Benedict's home. It's been altered since it was originally built, but this is where it happened. This is about a man who fell 75 feet to his death. Very sad, of course. William McCarthy Jr. in Daredevil Spirit climbs Benedict Tower. Now, the tower that we're talking about I don't think is there, but I will share this with you anyway. William McCarthy Jr. of 93 Lewis Street, aged 37, was fatally injured last Saturday at 11.50 a.m., when he fell from the top of a water tower on the estate of the late Commodore E.C. Benedict in the Bruce Park section to the ground a distance of 75 feet. He died in the Greenwich Hospital Saturday evening at 11 o'clock. McCarthy with William Morell of 971 Indian Harbor Drive went out clamming Saturday morning, and when they returned, McCarthy, being in a venturesome mood, suddenly left his companion in Bruce Park and ran over into the woods and climbed to the top of the water tower. Morell 
Realizing the danger, ran after him and urged him to descend, but McCarthy refused. Morell then started to climb the tower and had nearly reached the top when McCarthy suddenly lost his balance and fell clear of Morell to the ground. William Miller reported to the Greenwich police shortly after the accident that Morell had told him a man had been hurt or drowned in Bruce Park, and Officer Martin Nee was dispatched to the scene. The ambulance was summoned, and Mr. McCarthy was rushed to the Greenwich Hospital. One of his legs was so badly broken and crushed that had he lived, it probably would have been necessary to amputate it. He received a fracture of the arm and internal injuries. Mr. McCarthy was a painter by trade, having been employed by the Newton Decorative Company. He was born in Ireland, coming to this country about 12 years ago, living for a time in Port Chester and later in Rye before making his home in Greenwich. He saw active service overseas during the World War for eight months. He was Let's see. He was a member of the National Guard Unit of Stamford, Orinoco uh, Council, Knights of Columbus, and the Painters' Union. He is survived by two sisters, Mrs. Kate Warren and Miss Mary McCarthy of Lewis Street. His father, William McCarthy, and stepmother, who reside in Brooklyn. A requiem mass was said at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church Tuesday morning. The interment was in St. Mary's Cemetery. A firing squad from the National Guard unit of Stamford, to which he belonged, attended the funeral, sounded taps, and fired a volley at the grave. Many of you may be aware that on March 1st, 1995, I arrived in Honolulu, Hawaii, with two bags, $1,500 in my pocket, and um, looking forward to spending a year in Hawaii teaching at one of the uh, well-known and elite public school, or private schools, rather, um, in in Hawaii. Uh, And um, again, it was with the intention of being there just for a year and then returning. Instead, I have been going back and forth between uh, Greenwich and Honolulu and quite a number of other places uh, since that time. Uh, But one of the highlights of my first year in Hawaii was spending um, quite a bit of time at the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society and the Hawaiian Historical Society at the Mission Houses Museum in downtown Honolulu. It is there that they have uh, quite a number of letters, journals, diaries, all sorts of documents um, that were saved and preserved uh, in correspondences between uh, people here in 19th century Greenwich and Greenwich-born missionaries uh, that went to the islands. Um, And uh, and what I found was just absolutely astonishing, and I was able to send quite a bit of my research results back to um, Greenwich, and specifically, of course, to the Historical Society. This is uh, Black History Month, and um, and I wanted to draw your attention to something that had been a mystery uh, to us. The first pastor of the North Greenwich Congregational Church up in uh, North Greenwich, of course, the, the church still exists, um, at uh, on Riversville Road in John Street. Um, and one of the mysteries that we had was why was Reverend Chauncey Wilcox, who was the first pastor of that church, uh, dismissed? Uh, we were uh, quite intrigued by that, and I was able to find that out. So this was something that I wrote about in the Greenwich Time in a column called Looking Back. It was published in 1996. And uh, being that this is Black History Month, I thought that I would share it at this time because one of the major reasons 
uh, of uh, Reverend Wilcox's dismissal was abolitionism. So if you would, sit back, relax, and, um, and listen along. In 1827, the Reverend Chauncey Wilcox became pastor of the North Greenwich Congregational Church. Twenty years later, however, things were to change. Quote, I am expecting to be dismissed from my pastoral charge, unquote. He wrote to his brother-in-law, Amos Starr Cook, a missionary teacher in Hawaii, in April 1846. I found the reason for Wilcox's dismissal in my research on Greenwich missionaries in the library of the Hawaiian Mission Children's Society in Honolulu. Apparently, Deacon Silas Hervey Mead was the main proponent of Wilcox's dismissal. Quote, he has been at it at least seven years. He has done everything he could to weaken my influence, to talk against my preaching, unquote, Wilcox wrote to Cook. At issue with the two men's stances on the growing abolitionist movement against slavery. A committee of the church apparently would not allow, quote unquote, abolitionist lecturers into the church. The blame was apparently put on Wilcox. Quote, it is painful when a deacon of a church does so much to destroy the usefulness of his ministries, as I believe Deacon S.H. Meade has done, unquote. Wilcox wrote, Both men vehemently opposed the evil of slavery in America, but they differed on how to eradicate it. Deacon Silas Hervey Meade was an extremist in abolitionist circles in Greenwich. Such men fought uh, to end slavery, denouncing Southerners and those in the North who did not embrace their aggressive measures. Wilcox was also arduously opposed to slavery. Quote, Organized associations out of the slaveholding states is not the way to persuade the South to give up slavery. That slavery is a sin and that the South can and ought to rid itself of this evil, I believe, and so does all that I hear say anything on the subject. The only question that divides us from those who are technically called abolitionists is the means to get rid of slavery, unquote, Wilcox wrote in 1842. While impassioned abolitionists favored setting up societies in the North as platforms to denounce the Southern slaveholders, Wilcox and others felt that such societies should be set up in the South instead. Quote, we, all we have is that of moral mission. We must persuade them. We cannot drive them. In order to persuade them, we must so conduct as to have access to them. We must gain a hearing. We must be able to go among them and address them personally. If we can form associations against slavery in the slaveholding states, it might possibly do good, unquote. Wilcox's dismissal came later in 1846. A party of 70 to 80 well-wishers was held in Round Hill, quote, a donation visit in old Puritan New England style, unquote, according to the Reverend. Wilcox and his family moved to Ridgefield, where he spent the remainder of his years teaching at a boys' school. Quote, it was one of the most painful events in my life to be separated from that people, unquote, referring to the people of North Greenwich in a letter to Amos Star Cook in Hawaii, dated August 5th, 1848. Quote, I love them. My heart was bound up in their welfare, unquote. The Reverend Chauncey Wilcox, age 55, died on January 31, 1852. He was buried in the church cemetery at North Greenwich, and his 
headstone was restored in the year 1990 by his great-grandniece, someone that a number of you in uh, Greenwich might have known years ago. I certainly did, and that was Elizabeth Wilcox Willis. Thanks to missionaries who wisely preserved these letters, portals to our history in Greenwich continue to be revealed, and that is true. And if I may, um, I have a picture of uh, Reverend Wilcox's restored gravestone. There is a plaque on it that Betty Willis um, had um, installed on it. Um, and I'd like to uh, to enter this, uh, or, or actually uh, share this with you, if I may. And his epitaph is as follows. Entering on the duties of the sacred office with great zeal, he became the first pastor of the infant North Greenwich Congregational Church in North Greenwich in 1827, and there labored in the ministry for nearly 20 years. Many believed in Christ and were added to the church, and some encouraged and aided by him became heralds of the cross to be knighted inhabitants of the Pacific Isles. Many youth resorted to him for instruction, who will long remember his fidelity with affectionate gratitude. A faithful pastor, a thorough teacher, and beloved in all the relations of life, his end was peace, his memory blessed, erected by the people of his charge. Well, in honor of Black History Month, the Greenwich Historical Society welcomes Jeffrey Fletcher of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American Museum for the first lecture in the Historical Society's 2024 Shining a Light series. Fletcher will share the mission and background of the creation and continued expansion of the museum and explore in greater detail the stories highlighted by the museum's exhibits. Now, as a part of this lecture, Fletcher will discuss details of the museum's exhibits, a collection of artifacts that reflects decades of turbulent times for African Americans in the United States during the period of slavery and the civil rights movement. It brings visitors up close and personal which is an experience that many have only read about in history books or seen in movies. Now, Fletcher will also discuss how the exhibit embraces the teachings of tolerance, diversity, unity, and educating people that there was a time when imagery played a significant role in how African Americans were perceived. Uh, you are invited to join the opportunity to begin an honest conversation regarding a rich and strong history, which has historically been maligned. The Images of America exhibit is an experience which will leave lasting impressions and memories. The uh, I, Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Jeffrey Fletcher. He is the owner-collector of the Ruby and Calvin Fletcher African American Museum, is a lifelong resident who has raised in southeastern Connecticut. He is one of four children whose parents migrated from the South during the Jim Crow and turbulent civil rights movement. Now, you are invited to be a part of this. Um, it is, let's see, it's going to be on Thursday, February 29th, 2024 at 6 p.m. My friends, you can learn more and you can register uh, and uh, you can do so by going to GreenwichHistory.org and look under events. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to honor and observe the 1906 year in which the Greenwich Police Department was founded. 
And so we have this segment to remind ourselves that not all was tranquil and serene in Greenwich, that uh, people have committed crimes in our history and uh, still do today, unfortunately. This story that I have for you dates from a century ago, uh, from uh, February 1924, and it centers around a New York City police commissioner who got into some hot water here in Greenwich, Connecticut. And so the story goes as follows. It was reported, by the way, in the Greenwich News and Graphic on February 8th of that year, 1924. Just how Police Commissioner Richard Enright of New York City came to violate traffic rules in Greenwich's millionaire town on Tuesday cannot be explained, but he was saved from possible arrest and a severe reprimand from traffic officer Charles Wensley, by Danny Reardon, a member of the Stamford Police Department and Mayor Albert Phillips of Stamford, who disclosed the identity of the distinguished gentleman from the metropolis, that metropolis, of course, being New York City. The police commissioner, with other prominent police officials and guests from New York City, were returning from Stamford following the launching of the 50-foot boat Gypsy belonging to the New York Police Department at the Lauders Marine Construction Company's works in that city, and were on their way to the Pickwick Arms Hotel for lunch or luncheon. The big car in which the police commissioner was riding swung to the left of the traffic dummy at the corner of East Putnam Avenue and Greenwich Avenue, and Officer Wensley apprehended the car as it swung down Greenwich Avenue on the wrong side. We need to remind ourselves that there was a time when Greenwich Avenue was not one way, and apparently 1924 was one of those times. Anyway, on with the story. The officer blew his whistle, and the police commissioner had the machine brought to a standstill up against the curb. Officer Wensley had just started to reprimand the commissioner when one of the occupants in the machine that was following the commissioner's car beckoned to him. The officer's countenance changed when he learned from Danny Reardon that the police commissioner of New York was in the car ahead, and his statement was corroborated by Mayor Phillips. Officer Wensley allowed both cars to proceed on their way without saying another word. Hmm. Another amusing incident occurred when both machines entered the wrong driveway to the Arms, that's the Pickwick Arms Hotel, going in through the exit from Greenwich Avenue, where all cars come out after leaving passengers, instead of taking the entrance from East Putnam Avenue, just east of where the traffic dummy is located. <laughs> no objection was offered, however, and during the remainder of his stay in Greenwich, the police commissioner had no trouble. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store in Artists' Café is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. 
It was in mid-February 1901 that the Greenwich Graphic reported that the first reception within its walls, quote-unquote, was held at Rosemary Hall. Of course, many of you know that this was a very, very uh, uh, elite women's school or young ladies' school that was located in Greenwich. It is no longer here, of course, but it still exists. Um, And uh, again, this happened in 1901. Young ladies entertained. Students from Yale, Harvard, and Princeton come at their bidding, dancing from 8 till midnight, books and school duties forgotten. Well, how about that? All right. Rock Ridge is winterbound. Its bubbling brook is silent, rushed by uh, or hushed by an icy covering. Its birds went south months ago to the sunny south. The little squirrel is asleep, curled up in the hollow of some tree, waiting for the bluebird to come and claim its nesting place. (laughs) The woodchuck came out into the sunlight a day or two ago, but went back for another nap of six weeks. I think that that particular um, uh, section just refers to uh, Groundhog Day of um, 1901. Anyway, even the herd of jerseys is no more to be seen, being tethered in the stalls in the big warm barn under the hill. The wind blows bleak and cold and cutting over the ridges and fields. The moss on the rocks is gray, and winter garment is turned the beautiful green of summertime to a cold, cheerless white. Up in the northeast corner of this romantic spot, on the top of a hill, a big house flashes out into the the night air, warm and cheerful rays from its many windows, while the smoke curls up from the massive chimneys into the cold moonlight, suggests big backlogs and jolly hours. Thus it was at Ruck Ridge Saturday night last. It was to Rosemary Hall, the big house on the hill with the bright lights, that the Heckmen were told to go on that evening, as from the eastern and western bound trains, jolly students from Yale, Harvard, and Princeton alighted and took possession of the carriages. All day Saturday, the young ladies of the seminary were in a flutter, preparing for the reception of these students, and when Saturday night came, books were closed, desks were shut, school duties forgotten, and life had taken on its rosiest hue. It was the first hop at the new Rosemary Hall, and will be memorable perhaps more on that account. From eight o'clock until midnight, there was mirth, music, and dancing. Well, how about that? Every preparation to make the event worthy of Rosemary Hall was made. The spacious rooms suggested comfort and culture. The greens, palms, and cut flowers doing service in suggestiveness and adding their grace and perfume to the enjoyment of the evening. The dancers whirled over the floor of the gymnasium, which seemed especially suited for such a pleasure, while many colored electric lights were effective to brighten and decorate this room. An orchestra of six pieces furnished the music. Supper was served in the dining room, which was trimmed with greens and tables being decorated with flowers and candelabras. Um, Now, I will tell you, I'm going to stop here because there are are long lists of names. Some of this, unfortunately, has been blotched out due to the terrible poor scan of this. And I'm not going to read all of the names, obviously, but uh, the the names of the young ladies who attended uh, were were listed and also the students from those uh, Ivy League college uh, 
colleges that came also were listed. How about that? That's always nice. Um, but the, uh, the uh, story concludes as follows. The arrangements were so complete that the owl train stopped for the students, but many of them stayed overnight at the Maples and the Lennox Inn. And again, that is about, I guess, the first top uh, that was held at Rosemary Hall, and this was published in the Greenwich Graphic, February 16, 1901. Well, thank you for listening to the 20th of February, 2024 episode of the Greenwich A Town for All Season Show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I'm your host. The Greenwich A Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you every Everywhere. Contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Check out the ongoing events and exhibits at the Greenwich Historical Society at GreenwichHistory.org. And I invite you to join as a member. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 27th of February. 2024. See you then. Bye-bye now.